All right, let's get rolling. If you get notes. Technical drama. That's what we got going on here. Tooth and nail this morning, people. Tooth and nail. All right. <laughs> My stand. <laughs> All right. So let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning for spirit, wisdom, and revelation. We just come before you. We ask you, God, for clarity on the scriptures, for fresh revelation from your word. We ask for direction and clarity, God. We want our lives with focus and meaning, determination. God, we ask you this morning for the gift of revelation by your spirit concerning the things of the word, the day of the Lord, your coming, Jesus, the reality of the day of the Lord and the restoration of all things, we ask you, God, make it real to us this morning. Set our hearts on a course with clarity, God. Give us renewed uh, vigor and a clean heart, God, just a fresh revelation of the cross and believing that we will inherit the kingdom and the resurrection by the blood of your Son, that it's not by our own works or strength or striving, but by the blood of the cross that we are made righteous to inherit all things. Father, we thank you. We just thank you this morning that you have cleansed us and made us righteous in your sight. We want to stand before your Son without spot or blame on that day. Come Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Alright, so session three. So... Uh, We've uh, just a little bit of um, review. So in light of the coming kingdom, our dinky diagram, you have basic redemptive history. The setup at uh, your cosmogenical setup, your setup of how it is in uh, the beginning gives reference and understanding for where it's going and the, the uh, restoration, redemption, salvation at the day of the Lord. And so, uh, like we talked about in the first couple weeks of this class, that really sets out just a basic hermeneutic of approaching our own lives as fundamentally sojourning in nature. And so, uh, just based on the broad framework of history being amnestic in this age, that God is refraining in mercy and long-suffering from the day of the Lord, that that basic framework really gives us the framework of who we are, our identity, whose we are. We are, we are gods. We, have alleg- we pledge allegiance to the man that he's appointed to judge the living and the dead. We set our lives in reference to the day of the Lord. And our lives, are, our identity and uh, our trajectory of life is determined by the day of the Lord. And so in that light, in light of God sojourning, so to say, uh, in the way he's governing over creation, in light of him refraining from judgment, in light of him refraining from blessing and raising up the righteous, and glory and punishing the wicked and throwing them into fire, 
then we pattern our lives in the same way and, and we are imitators of God. And so, and so in that light, we are uh, basically sojourning in light of God refraining from uh, punishment. And so our primary, our primary calling in this age as we're sojourning is simply to keep faith, to hold to uh, sound instruction, to, to, uh, to walk according to the Spirit, and, uh, and keep our faith and belief in what uh, He has told us is true is actually being true. And keeping faith means keeping it real, not just, you know, keeping an understanding, but actually that we wake up and that it really is real that the day of the Lord is coming. That God really is sovereignly and kindly ruling over the earth. That nothing is outside of His domain or control, and that things aren't just happening by chance. And but that uh, history really is like an arrow moving toward the day of the Lord, and it really is coming. We may not know that day uh, directly, but we know for sure in our hearts, and it's a real thing to us that it's coming. And so. That thing, that faith, and, uh, you know, throughout the scriptures, you know, Abraham received the promise and worshiped God and set up an altar because it's, uh, we worship God in response to how we perceive him governing over creation. And so faith and worship are all tangled together in a knot because they, uh, the way we see God ruling over creation evokes the response of you really are all powerful and holy and you will do what you say and you're good and you're righteous and you're kind. Even if the wicked prosper now, the righteous, you will show a distinction in the age to come. And, um, and so uh, the primary thing being worship, or faith, secondarily, is uh, preparation or discipleship. That in light of our destiny, in light of the coming kingdom, then the church's role is to prepare herself and uh, stay on a narrow path and uh, walk in holiness and righteousness, producing fruit in accordance with our repentance. Because we repent because we believe our lives are going to be judged and we're going to be held accountable. And that standard of what we're going to be held accountable to, that's how we walk out our lives now, you know. And so the reason people don't walk out their lives in righteousness is because an ethereal day of the Lord and an ethereal judgment doesn't have any real standard of righteousness. I mean, it's just kind of arbitrary, whatever anybody says God's going to judge human beings according to. But God's going to judge human beings according to a real law. There's going to be a real Messiah. It's going to descend to the earth, and he's going to judge the earth with a real law and a real standard of righteousness that's going to be enforced upon the earth. And so the Spirit takes the day of the Lord, the coming kingdom, the righteousness that's going to be mandated across the earth. He makes it known to us. And we produce fruit in keeping with repentance of the day of, of judgment. And we walk out 
to the light that is given to us, we walk out in accord with what we know God is going to uh, establish upon the earth. And, uh, and we, in light of Jesus being given all authority over the heavens and the earth, and in light of us knowing that God has entrusted him with judgment, then we, uh, we walk in discipleship and we disciple others in light of that, teaching them, uh, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything the Lord has commanded. And so, um, and so this week, the third, where we pick up on, uh, on the notes, is uh, the uh, third primary aspect is evangelism. concerning the good news of the day of the Lord. And you can't really divide out the three because the three are all, you know, knit together. But it's just a helpful way to think of these three primary aspects are how we model our lives and how we uh, uh, just uh, stay steady (laughs) in this age when everything goes like this continually. And, uh, and so, and really when you get out and you guys are ministering and you're on the mission field or wherever you're at, you, you want to, as I, as I have, um, you know, I came into, I came to the Lord in a campus ministry that was really vibrant and, and, uh, the spirit was really active, and there was real community, and it was home-based uh, fellowship, and with a weekly corporate gathering. But it was really the small group-based, and there was really, as I look back on it, all three of these functioning in tandem in a healthy way, where the worship on Tuesday nights was just real and heartfelt and we did worship in the small groups and the intensity of it and there was reality to it and there was real mentoring there was real mechanisms networks of relationships where people were mentored and raised up and cared for and then there was a real uh, place for evangelism and there was real infrastructure to bring unbelievers in and there was real initiative and intentionality about sharing the gospel on campus, sharing the gospel in our homes, you know, studying with people, sharing the gospel in every context, at work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there was the whole ministry was designed around equipping people to do these three things really effectively in their lives and in their spheres. And as I kind of look back you know, as my various state, you know, places in life and where I've been and ministries I've been involved with and and missions organizations, and as I just kind of study it, I realize that if you lose one of these three things, it's like a tripod, you know. If you lose one, the thing just falls over. You get a really discipleship and evangelism-oriented ministry, and the thing just dies because there's no, you know, vibrant, life in God within the people corporately, or you get a real, you know, worship and discipleship oriented ministry and it dies because it becomes so navel gazing, inwardly focused. And it's, I mean, it just, or you get, 
you know, worship and, a, and evangelism and you get that lack of, of depth and substance and, and uh, the, when the community's not there, the thing just breaks down as far as the life of the, of the people and how they relate. And so anyway, the three really uh, need to function in tandem uh, with each other. So anyway, so the tertiary w- role, if you pick up in, in uh, point A, this is, um, this is where you get like the main thrust of the book of Acts and, and even the epistles to, an, to a degree. But when you read the book of Acts, you really get, you know, you get the blueprint for how the church is supposed to function in this age. If you got the apostles, if you believe that they really were discipled by Jesus and for 40 days personally on doctrine, understanding of the kingdom of God, that they really did have clarity on it, then you 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 really want to pattern your lives after how they walk the thing out. And uh, I've heard a lot of people say that, well, you know, that was just a transitionary period and uh, and that the book of Acts isn't really normative for how we should live and function. And, and uh, I think that's just confused that they really did have clarity on the message and therefore they they uh, walked out and implemented the ministry the way they did and intentionally creating the way they networked, the way they functioned relationally, the way they, uh, uh, the kind of infrastructure they built, etc., was very intentionally designed in light of what their destiny was. And so because their destiny was such, they walked out in this way. And so in the book of Acts, you get such a stress on preaching the gospel and preaching the word because this is kind of, you know, it's it's like out of this place of worship, we worship by walking according to righteousness and ultimately, if we love God and love our neighbor, we're going to tell them about what is coming. You know, it's, uh, I just can't shake that, that scene of Seinfeld. I know it's another generation, but where Elaine is, Putty's dating Elaine, and, and Putty has the fish symbol, and uh, Putty won't tell her that she's going to hell or whatever and she gets angry because obviously putty doesn't love her because he won't get up the guts to it's a different generation isn't it (laughs) you guys didn't grow up watching seinfeld (laughs) anyway but there's just that sorry i couldn't get it out of my mind so i just had to say it forgive me uh i've defiled the class with seinfeld um so there's just that but there's that reality of uh there's that reality of if you love people, you will tell them the, what, where things are going and where their lives are going out of love, you know. And, and most people are, uh, they have uh, enough going on up here that they can tell when people are trying to evangelize them for some other reason other than love, you know, whether they're trying to build their organization or build some personal reputation or 
or uh, or agenda or whether they're doing it out of some sort of trying to earn favor with God or whatever, whatever. But if there really is genuine love for a human being, then it uh, and love for God and uh, evangelism and proclamation flows out of that thing. So Luke twenty four, you get in light of um, in light of Luke twenty four and the uh, and the road to Emmaus and did you not know that the Messiah must suffer before entering into his glory, and in light of the end and where things are going, you get, this is what I told you while I was with you, everything must be fulfilled concerning not just the glory, but the suffering beforehand. This is what's written, the Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And uh, so you get kind of a parallel um, account in Acts 1 where he says in light of the kingdom of God the you know when the angel says he'll return just like he went up in light of his return in light of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel when Jesus will rule from Israel over all the nations etc then in light of that you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth and so it really is, this is why I love that Donovan book, because even though the theology gets a little crazy in there, the main point is is that he, um, have you guys started reading that one? But you know that letter he writes to the cardinal, and he's just like, I cannot, my mission and purpose in this age, I cannot keep the machine running and the school and the clinic and the orphanage and the compound. Like, like my mission and purpose is to go tell people about Jesus. And the whole infrastructure, this thing is like, it, uh, it militates against me walking that thing out and, and doing like they did in the book of Acts. So as the class unfolds, we'll talk more and more pointedly about um, uh, those specific things as far as the form of the church. But there's just that, that drive in all of us where we want our lives to be about worshiping God. We want our lives to be about prayer and seeking the Lord and walking according to His Spirit, and we want our lives to be about righteousness and holiness, sanctification, being pleasing to Him, being found without spot or blame on the day of the Lord, discipleship, and then we want our lives to be about preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, making known the truth of, of who Jesus is and the day of the Lord. And so... Um, Acts 1.6, you'll be my witnesses, and then you get the commentary like we've talked about in Acts 10 where, where uh, Peter explains what being a witness, what that primarily entails. That primarily entails teaching people that Jesus is the one appointed to be judge of the living and the dead. And so, uh, and so being a witness is primarily about making known messianic expectation. The the problem that we run into is that we have such a void within modern uh, kind of Platonic Christo-naturalistic worldview of any kind of biblical messianic expectation. So there has to be a 
bunch of we can't just walk into the synagogue like Paul and and uh, and preach that Jesus is the Messiah because people go, what does Messiah mean? You know. So there's we have a, a couple hurdles to jump over first. So point B, this witness primarily consists of the proclamation of the gospel or good news of the kingdom. The essential constitution of the gospel is the resurrection and the kingdom. So Mark 1, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so a prophetical reiteration, the day of the Lord is at hand, the kingdom's at hand that is inaugurated at the day of the Lord. This is the good news, and this is where, you know, you can't just, like I love Roland Allen, and I love his his passion and his intensity, but you can't just say, we're not concerned about theology, we're concerned about ministry. You know, we're not concerned about getting bogged down in the message and theology, we just need to preach the simple message, which ends up being a platonic heavenly destiny thing. We just need to focus on the ministry and replicate what, what the New Testament did. And you just really can't do that because there's no... The spontaneous expansion and multiplication of the church happened because of what they were saying. Right? People repented and gave their lives to Jesus because of the message. And so there is no, there is no backing up by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the conversion of the human heart apart from a right message that means something to someone. And so, uh, so you have, the, uh, you have the two that function together. Page two, this is just a little bit of the uh, rehearsing of the message, which is what we talked about. But this is, you know, when you get into circles and you're talking about you know, the mission of the church, proclaiming the gospel, evangelism, etc., you, if you don't back up and say, what is the gospel, you know, it, it was just such a marking event for me uh, 12 years ago when I was in Perspectives sitting next to Mike Compton and, and the, a big leader from YWAMs talking about preaching the gospel, all the nations and this, that and the other. And Mike raises his hand and goes, um, can you just clarify for me what the gospel is? I can't connect it in my mind directly. And he kind of bumbled around and Mike says, so you're telling me you can't just tell me what the gospel is clearly. And John was like, I, was, <laughs> I gave his name away. So the guy was like, uh, no, I'm sorry. And, and Mike goes, that's astounding. We've created global infrastructures for sending people out to preach the gospel and we don't have clarity on what the gospel is. And so there's that, there's just that thing in my heart where, you know, when you talk about evangelism and proclamation, it really is context is everything. What is evangelism and proclamation in light of? You know, what are we, what are we talking about? And so, um, yeah, so point one, humanity's ultimate problem is death, suffering, sickness, and its root of wickedness and rebellion. And this is the bad news that gets preached on, you know, TV and radio 24-7. People are living their own lives out in the midst of it. And uh, 
and the, you get hurricanes and then major leaders of the church come on the scene and they're like trying to give, interpret and give news to the situation. And there's, since there's no, rest, there's no redemptive theology that creation is redeemed and restored, there's no messianic expectation, it's just this kind of bumbling around as to whether God did it or maybe he didn't do it and maybe it's just Satan and maybe it's just nature and whatever, whatever. There's no clarity on, this is the good news. There's suffering and death now, but we believe in the resurrection of the body and the kingdom to come and the day of the Lord. And if you repent, you will be saved from the wrath to come also. And I'm not sure about Hurricane Katrina or the earthquake in Haiti or whatever. You know, maybe they were more wicked than the other people that the Tower of Siloam fell on. But... This thing I'm for sure of, you need to repent because God really is sovereign over the heavens and the earth. He was sovereign over that earthquake and just as much as they need to repent, you need to repent because the day of the Lord's coming, you know? And so it's just that clarity and simplicity of this is where our lives are going on planet earth and it's good news to the righteous and it's really bad news to the wicked. Um, Point two, on the other hand, the Christonaturalistic gospel essentially acquiesces and concedes to death, incorporating it into the core of its good news. Oxymoronically, (laughs) nice word, as in an oxymoron, death is the means of escaping death. Death is the means of escaping death, as Chad Brewer says, the Greek gospel of death, which itself is immortalized when the material heavens and earth are destroyed. And so, 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And again, the question is faith, what, what... what are what are we faith in what what are we talking about verse 19 if only for this life we have hope in Christ we are to be pitied more than all men but Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits etc and he goes into that the the following verses verse 30 and as for us why do we endanger ourselves every hour i die every day i mean that brothers just as surely as i glory over you in Christ Jesus and so his point is is that I imitate Christ Jesus in not living my life for this age, living my life for the age to come, sacrificing, learning to love and self-sacrifice in this age, dying in this age that I may glory over you. And there's like uh, like uh, First Thessalonians, um, where does he say? First Thess- the end of First Thessalonians 2, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. In which he's referencing like, uh, like Zechariah 9 and, and Isaiah 62, where the redeemed are seen as a crown and a jewel in the hand of the Lord uh, when he comes in glory. And so... 1 Corinthians 15, he's referencing how he's living in this age in light of the day of the Lord and, and, uh, and uh, the hope of glory 
Verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so it really is, if there's not a real theology of the resurrection of the body and the day of the Lord and the coming of the Messiah, then people will live as though, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, because it doesn't mean anything. And so when you have such an entrenched, immaterial heavenly destiny in the church this is why the church lives the way it does eating and drinking for tomorrow we die and you have the same immorality rate and you have the same lifestyle and you have the same covetousness and you have the same christians always living in the rich neighborhoods and always i mean it's just like it it, it's it's (laughs) your destiny determines how you live in this life it really does and so uh So, uh, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And so, his point of ignorant of God in 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, he's laid out what not being ignorant is about. Not being ignorant is about clear understanding of the resurrection of the dead, And when he comes, he will establish a kingdom in which he'll bring all dominion under his feet. And then he'll hand the kingdom over to the Father, that he may be all in all, etc. And so, it's ignorance about these doctrines and sound instruction that inherently disciple and give meaning to our lives and reality to them. And when they're real, they keep us on a narrow path. And there's, it's obviously not just the ideas themselves, but it's the Holy Spirit that leads us in righteousness and is our counselor, guide, and discipler. But the Holy Spirit takes right ideas and understanding of the Word, makes them known to us, and grips us with it and presses us forward. Point three, this Christo-naturalistic gospel is proclaimed throughout the earth in sermon, song, and lifestyle Though a retarded hope is the only thing available to the modern church. And so this is the enigma of it is that you get this, you know, it's a, it is, I mean, it is to some degree a hope, a, a, there is an escaping of death. If you get the, like I put on, uh, uh, I put on the top of the page there, just the, the uh, couple verses to I'll Fly Away, which I'll fly, I just put it on there because I'll Fly Away is the, is the most recorded uh, Christian song in history. And it comes out of kind of the tradition of the Southern uh, spirituals, the black spirituals. And you get that like, um, you know, the Johnny Cash album, my mother's hymn, hymns or whatever it is. It's just a lot of the Southern black spirituals. And you get that just hardcore pressing on all the hymns and songs about the celestial, immaterial hope and destiny. Because it is, in in light of the oppression of slavery and discrimination and, and what they went through, and there were believers, like they really did thrust their hope onto the day of the Lord within the within the platonic day of the lord construct because it is some kind of hope i mean it's better than no hope and 
even though it is kind of like some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. Hallelujah. When I die, hallelujah. So I mean, you get that hallelujah death, but at least there's some kind of deliverance from the problem of evil and suffering in this age. But the, the, the strange thing about it is just how little even the retarded hope is focused upon, much less the biblical hope of the second coming and the resurrection. Even the retarded hope is, is very rarely talked about and focused on like it should be. I mean, if we actually believed, you know, if the church actually believed in this material, immaterial, heavenly destiny, floating on a cloud, etc., where there is no more death or pain, then there ought to be, every single Sunday, ought to start with some sort of grounding in heaven. You know, some sort of casting our eyes on our destiny of going to heaven, what it will be like in heaven, the songs we'll sing in heaven, the glory of heaven. The, you know, it, it, it ought to be just pressed continually every Sunday. And believers ought to, you know, believers ought to be trained to get up every morning and set their gaze on heaven and set their, on immaterial, ethereal heaven. You know what I'm saying, but... Right. I know, and it's just like... But so, like, I just put this quote in here from, (laughs) easy, (laughs) and so there's this, I just put this quote in here from, uh, from Randy Alcorn, where he says, John Calvin, the great expositor, never wrote a commentary on Revelation, never dealt with the eternal state at any length, though he encourages meditation on heaven and his institutes of the Christian religion, his theology of heaven seems strikingly weak compared to his theology of God, Christ, salvation, scripture, and the church. Um, a great deal has been written about eschatology, the study of the end times, but comparatively little about heaven. And so in reality, there's a great deal written about eschatology and the rapture and the second coming, and but that's not really, that's like, uh, that's like uh, uh, preparatory eschatology or intermediate eschatology. That's not really eschatology. I mean, that's just like, that's just like this little stage right here, this little seven-year period here, right before the return and establishment of the kingdom. It's not really. This is the end things right here. <laughs> you know, this is eschatology. And so, and so what he's talking about is there's, uh, within Christonaturalism, there's a whole bunch talked about right here, but there's almost nothing talked about up here. You know, the, the, the real end game of the equation No, you're exact. I mean, I think part of that is is because you can't, you just can't, you can't manipulate Isaiah 60 to talk about etherealized heaven. You can't manipulate Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 35, Isaiah. I mean, you can't like all the Zechariah, Daniel. I mean, you just can't manipulate those things to talk about an immaterial, ethereal, eternal destiny. And so all you have is two chapters at the end of Revelation and some kind of twisting 
on some other things to talk to some of the parables to talk about heaven. And so you just don't have a lot of material. But even so, I mean, I think you could probably produce some amount of information based on Revelation 21 and 22 and some spiritualizing of a bunch of passages. And that's his point is that there's hardly, even in light of that, there's hardly any writing on it. And so he says, he says, uh, Comparatively little's written about heaven. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote an in-depth two-volume set titled The Nature and Destiny of Man. So the end game of man. Remarkably, he had nothing to say about heaven. William Shedd's three-volume dogmatic theology contains 87 pages on eternal punishment, but only two on heaven. In his 900-page theology, Great Doctrines of the Bible, Martin Lloyd-Jones devotes less than two pages to the eternal state and the new earth. Louis Burkhoff's classic systematic theology devotes 38 pages to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, 15 pages to what theologians call the intermediate state, yet it contains only two pages on hell and one page on the eternal state. When all that's said about the eternal heaven is limited to page 737 of a 737-page systematic theology like Burkhoff's, it raises a question. Does Scripture really have so little to say? Are there so few theological implications to the subject? The biblical answer, I believe, is an emphatic no. In The Eclipse of Heaven, the, uh, theology professor A.J. Conyers writes, Even to one without religious commitment and theological convictions, it should be an unsettling thought that this world is attempting to chart its way through some of the most perilous waters in history, having now decided uh, to ignore what was for nearly two millennia its fixed point of reference, its North Star. The certainty of judgment, the longing for heaven, the dread of hell, these are not prominent considerations in our modern discourse about the important matters of life, but they once were. And so, you know, longing for heaven, whatever. His point is, in light of the death, suffering, wickedness, oppression of this age, right here, in light of what's going on here, then... Even if it's within, you know, that same picture is within this framework, the Platonic framework, there ought to be an at least consistent and pressing point towards the North Star, you know, the, the end game and destiny, yet it's almost never even talked about. And so, like, there's just that, like, on the one hand, I'm like, rah, about... Why Why is the resurrection and kingdom not preached? We have this ethereal heavenly destiny and it's just like wrecking the church. And, but on the other hand, I'm like, it's just that, that, that pain of why isn't the church at least giving some hope, even a retarded platonic hope? Let's just at least give people something to focus their vision on. And so like, that's why I made this, uh, I made this printout of Jonathan Edwards where he works through the Christian pilgrim or the true Christian's life, a journey toward heaven. And he just works through systematically. uh, He works through two things may be observed here. What these saints confessed of themselves, that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth 
uh, section one, that this life ought to be so spent by us as to be only a journey or pilgrimage towards heaven. Here I would observe that we ought not to rest in the world and its enjoyments, but we should desire heaven. We should seek first the kingdom of God, etc. Point two on page two, we ought to seek heaven by traveling in the way that lead thither the way of holiness. Point three, we should travel on this way in a laborious manner, in a focused manner with toil and fatigue through the wilderness. Point four, our whole lives ought to be spent in traveling this road. We ought to begin early. This should be the first concern when persons become capable of acting. They ought to set out in the world. They should set, they should, when they first set out in the world, they should set out on this journey and we ought to travel on with assiduity. Point five, we ought to be continually growing in holiness as, uh, and in that respect coming nearer and nearer to heaven. Point six, all other concerns of life ought to be entirely subordinate to this. And so I printed it off not because I, you know, obviously I'm not in agreement with the heavenly destiny, but just let's live our lives in light of the end game, you know? And it's like, if your end game is an immaterial eternal existence of the soul, then live your life in light of it and get hold of that North Star and navigate according to it, you know? How much more if your North Star and your navigational point is the day of the Lord and the restoration of all things, therefore worship in light of the day of the Lord and the coming kingdom and the resurrection. Disciple in light of the kingdom and the resurrection. Evangelize in light of the kingdom and the resurrection and orient our lives completely around it. And so... Anyway, the church would need to change its thoughts on Israel. Agreed. As a group, as a body. Yeah. Other thoughts on that? That's just about that, about focusing on the eschatological perspective. The church would need to understand the importance of Israel and just the prophetic word, and then it, it would all come together. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's going to be a real restoration of creation and a real restoration of a real nation that there's going to be a real king of Israel ruling over all the other nations of the earth. <laughs> it just fleshes out the picture. and I mean, no, but it's real. Like, the more you flesh out the end game and what that picture is going to look like, the more that North Star becomes clearer and more focused and you have, I mean, that's why I assigned last semester the Alvin McLean book, even though he's real heavy dispensational and he relegates, you know, the implication is that he relegates all of that to the Jews and we're in heaven during all of that, but he fleshes out a lot of the prophetic scriptures when you're reading through and you're just reading through the commentary and life comes on your spirit because you, you're starting to get clarity and focus about this is what it's going to be like on the earth after Jesus returns. Sets up his kingdom in Israel and rules over all the nations. And this is how the government's going to be like. This is how the economy's going to be like. This is how we're going to relate together, full of love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And I mean, you just get like, once the end game becomes more and more f- focused and clear, it really just like 
levels your life out and makes it, you know, your days are more simple. You relate to things in light. Your the, just the context of your life is more clear and simple, and focused. Good. So when you're talking about the end game, you're mostly talking about the millennial kingdom, right? Because I mean, the scripture doesn't talk much about what happens after the millennium. No, I think it. I think it mostly talks about what it's like after the millennium and that that uh the first thousand years is really just the initiation that's why i never really because that phrase obviously isn't in the scripture it's deduced it's a fine phrase millennial kingdom but um that that phrase the millennial kingdom came to prominence in the 50s and 60s especially because of walvard pentecost and ryrie and they, because they realized that the eternal bifurcation of the material and immaterial, and therefore its consequences on interpretation of the covenants, especially the new covenant, because if you have an eternal two-tier reality and you have two eternal destinies, then you have to have two new covenants. And so it's really the, the two new covenants aspect is what brought traditional dispensationalism to a breaking point, even though it's popularly still believed quite a bit. But in light of that, you had a, a, uh, a refocusing. And so like, for example, like Dwight Pentecost, you get a refocusing on just the millennium and this little time frame here. And the millennium is, is in modified dispensationalism, is the exact same thing as the eternal bifurcation in traditional dispensationalism in which you have the church up here and Israel down here. And then they'll, you know, like Pentecost says, the church and Israel are together here. And Ryrie says the church and Israel are together up here in the eternal state. But it's the same way where they both only devote like two pages at the very end to it and they just kind of ignore it. And so the millennial kingdom became the end game and modified dispensationalism. And so that's why that the idea of the millennial kingdom, that really became the eschatology of dispensationalism for uh, a good while there. And so that's why the, that phrase, the millennial kingdom, carries so much baggage with it that I just tend to kind of avoid thinking about it because really, you know, the first thousand years is just the initiation as he progressively, you know, that kingdom from Israel and all the saints that gather in Jerusalem and it expands over all the earth and he establishes saints and all the nations and it grows like a rock like Daniel 2. And then at the end of it, 1 Corinthians 15, he hands the, he hands the kingdom over to the Father and the kingdom of the Father and the Son are on the earth forever and the tree of life, the river of life, his his servants serve him forever. And so if you're a Jewish man and you're reading the the Revelation of John in chapter 22, I mean, you're, you're plugging in Isaiah 60. You're plugging in Isaiah 62. You're plugging in Isaiah 65. You're plugging in Zechariah, you know, 14. You're plugging in Daniel 9. You're plugging in all these... Uh, prophetic scriptures and the the prophecy about 
how it will be like Isaiah 24, the Lord ruling on Mount Zion with his elders gloriously, that's what you're plugging into Revelation 22 in the equation. And so there's, that's why, you know, the Alva McLean book, that's why I was so just taken by it because he just develops so many thoughts about how life will be in the age to come. And so that's why I just kind of want to stress that this little line here at the end of the thousand years isn't as clear and hard as it gets presented generally. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think it'll be significant. Obviously, Satan's going to be released from prison. There's going to be, a, you know, a, a some sort of rebellion, however great that's going to be, and then a final crushing and the handing over of the kingdom to the Father. So there's obviously going to be a significant transition, but I think in the overall scope of things, the uh, this is seen as more as a whole, that from the second coming onward, it's kind of, you know, whatever. All right, is that a setup? Are you setting me up? <laughs> no, I'll take it. I'll run with it. What do you think? Have I have I not talked to you about Tim Warner's? No. Okay, so I gotta. <laughs> so like, is it group? Like, so I've <laughs> groups all together, and like you know, here's the new no, I had heard about I had heard about that the early church fathers and I had read a couple of quotes that they believed in a millennial Sabbath and that there would be that the seven days of creation were symbolic of each day was like a thousand years, that redemptive history would be six thousand years and then there would be a thousand years of rest on the earth before a final consummation. And uh and so and so I like I had heard about it, but I hadn't really had the energy and I didn't have the knowledge, you know, of the early church fathers and still don't really. But I read a, a an article by Tim Werner a couple of months ago where he works through and quotes like eight passages from the early church fathers and arguing that the rabbinical tradition was there even before you know, the revelation of John that the Messiah would come and rule for a thousand years. And it was based on Genesis and the interpretation of, uh, you know, the prophetic oracles like uh, uh, Psalm, whatever, 90 or 95, which is the one, days like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. And so Peter quotes that in Second Peter 3 and the book of Hebrews 3 and 4 assume that theology because he quotes Genesis 2 in Hebrews 4 or whatever it is. Where is it at? So he says, uh, he says, uh, yeah, so uh, 4.3, now we believe, now, now we who have believed, chapter 4, verse 3, enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest, and yet his work has been finished since, creation, since the creation of the world. 
For he spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. And so the book of Hebrews, it's fairly clear that he's, he's, the early church fathers say it was Paul, that's good enough for me. And so the book of Hebrews is done in rabbinical style where they quote small passages and assume that everybody knows all of the passage surrounding it. So he's quoting from, uh, from Genesis 2 and Psalm 95, assuming they know all of the context around it and they can just jump along with him. And so the same way when he's working through A Priest Forever in the Order of Melchizedek, they obviously all know he's quoting from like one of the two main prophetic oracles out of the Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And so they obviously know he's talking about the Messiah who's going to sit at the right hand of the Father until the Father makes his enemies his footstool and he crushes his enemies on the day of his wrath and heaps up kings, etc. And so they obviously know that he's just, he's, he's working through, you know, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and he's, he's highlighting and bringing out that strange enigmatic verse in the middle of that prophetic oracle of Psalm 110. And so even though he doesn't quote the rest of Psalm 110, so it's, I'm a little off track here. But so Hebrews 4, his point is in quoting Genesis 2 is that it it's, seems clear that in everybody's mind they have a theology of a millennial rest that's already in rabbinic tradition and then gets repeated over and over in the early church fathers, that they believed that there would be 6,000 years of rebellion and then the then Jesus would return and establish his kingdom. And so, yes, there was uh, a belief in a millennial rest, and and that's how it was derived from, was the day of the Lord and that the the second coming was the day in reference to the night now and the days of creation were were typological of redemptive history as a whole and I haven't worked it all out but I know there's a lot more cohesion in it. So and then Tim Warner works through a chronology that's absolutely fantastic and works out that we're that Jesus was crucified on day four on year four thousand AD and that he'll return on six thousand AD and if you calculate when he was crucified, they generally translate to the Gregorian calendar as twenty seven to thirty three AD and therefore he'll probably return somewhere between twenty twenty seven and twenty thirty three. Okay. Move on. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. <laughs> No, but I love how he ends it. I love how he ends it. Do I have it? He just that I love it. Yeah. He th- what? <laughs> oh, I gave it to you. Do you have the- it? Nah, I must have given it to somebody else. He works at the end. He works off of there and goes, now my point isn't to, you know, he says my point isn't to connect it to the Gregorian calendar and make a prediction. That's not the point at all. I mean, it shouldn't matter whether Jesus is returning in 20 years or 200 years or 2,000 we should be living the same way now, not living for this age, living for the age to come. But how much more if it really is 20 years out? If it's not, it's, I mean, it's not really, it doesn't really affect our lifestyle other than it helps us gird that, 
in about seven years, it's going to get more and more intense as the thing leads up to it. And we really need to, if we're in that last seven, it's going to be, you know, really important that uh, that uh, we're on board and and in for this thing, with this thing. All right, let's get back into uh, to the notes. Where are we at here? All right, yeah, so point C, the good news of the kingdom also inherently consists of bad news towards the wicked and the unrepentant. Thus, the good news is consistently accompanied by a call to repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. You have repent for the kingdom of heavens at hand in Matthew 3. You have the Luke 3 uh, parallel to it that who, you know, where uh, John the Baptist is is saying... uh, who warns you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the coming wrath? And so there's the, you know, it's inherently bad news for uh, for those, uh, for the unrepentant. Acts 2, you have the proclamation of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And it's good news for those who are, of, of the 120 who gathered to pray consistently or in the, or, and are in the upper room who received the Holy Spirit, but it's bad news for those who crucified the Lord. Yeah, so we're to point three. Let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll uh, pick up proclamation by word and deed.